0: Welcome to the election ride home for Monday, November 18th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins, with a summary of election news. Today, a close governor's race in Louisiana stays blue. Bloomberg apologizes for his stop and frisk policy. A giant pile of new polling data arrives. The Trump impeachment stuff in three minutes or less. Obama tells Democrats to chill out just a bit. There's a rumor that yet another Republican might jump into the primary or something. And a brief reminder that there is a DNC debate in two days. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. On Saturday, a runoff election in Louisiana went to the incumbent, Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards. It was a hard-fought race. His competitor was a businessman from Baton Rouge, Eddie Respone. Bell Edwards won the race with just over 51% of the vote. Reminder, President Trump won Louisiana in 2016 by 20%. So let's talk about the similarities and differences between this race in Louisiana and that Kentucky governor's race we've been talking about for the last two weeks. In Kentucky, incumbent governor Matt Bevan was notably unpopular. His polling was just really bad. That opened a crack for a Democrat who happened to also be the son of a previous Kentucky governor to jump in and win that race. President Trump spent some time in Kentucky doing rallies trying to help that Republican candidate, but it wasn't quite enough. In Louisiana, the dynamic was a little different. In that case, the incumbent was a Democrat, and Trump showed up for rallies there as well. But one of the big challenges in Louisiana is that Bell Edwards is not particularly liberal. He is pro-gun rights, he's anti-abortion, and he actually is capable of drawing a chunk of traditional conservative Republicans because of that. Let me read from just one of the many analyses of the Louisiana race published over the weekend. This one is by Jonathan Martin and Maggie Haberman, writing for the New York Times. Quote, when President Trump showed up in Louisiana for the third time in just over a month to try to help Republicans win the governor's race, he veered off script and got to the heart of why he was staging such an unusual political intervention. His attempt to lift Governor Matt Bevan of Kentucky to victory this month had failed, Mr. Trump explained, and it would look bad for him to lose another race in a heavily Republican state. You gotta give me a big win, please, okay? The president pleaded with a red-hatted crowd last Thursday in Bossier City, Louisiana. But on Saturday night, Mr. Trump's wager backfired in spectacular fashion. Not only did Governor John Bell Edwards, a Democrat, win re-election by more than 40,000 votes, he did so with the same coalition that propelled Governor-elect Andy Beshear to victory in Kentucky, and that could put the president's re-election chances in grave jeopardy next year. Like Mr. Bashir, Mr. Edwards energized a combination of African Americans and moderate whites in and around the urban centers of his state, building decisive margins in New Orleans, Baton Rouge, and Shreveport. Quote. That last part is key. Regardless of the politics at the top, Democrats appear to be succeeding in all kinds of recent elections, including that Virginia legislature thing, when they are able to turn out a broad coalition. And that coalition depends heavily on people of color. Next up, former New York City Governor Michael Bloomberg apologized for one of his signature policies, and it was a policy that severely affected people of color. Reading from an article by Shane Goldmacher in the New York Times, quote, Ahead of a potential Democratic presidential run, former Mayor Michael R. Bloomberg of New York on Sunday reversed his long-standing support of the aggressive stop-and-frisk policing strategy that he pursued for a decade and that led to the disproportionate stopping of Black and Latino people across the city. I was wrong, Mr. Bloomberg declared, and I am sorry. The speech, Mr. Bloomberg's first since he reemerged as a possible presidential candidate, was a remarkable concession by a 77-year-old billionaire not known for self-doubt. That a pillar of his 12-year mayoralty was a mistake that he now regrets. It was also, in some ways, a last word on an era of aggressive policing in New York City that began a generation ago under former Mayor Rudolph W. Giuliani, though the fallout on neighborhoods is still felt to this day. Speaking before the congregation at the Christian Cultural Center, a black megachurch in Brooklyn, Mr. Bloomberg delivered his apology in the heart of one of the communities most affected by his policing policies, and at a location that nodded to the fact that should he decide to run for president, African American voters would be a crucial democratic constituency that he would need to win over. End quote. The article goes on to describe how after Bloomberg concluded his remarks and took his seat in the church, Reverend A.R. Bernard had to urge folks to, quote, show some love and appreciation, end quote, which only resulted in what the Times called tepid applause. This highlights one of the key challenges Bloomberg faces should he decide to run. His long political history leaves him with baggage that could hurt him in an effort to build the very coalition he would need to win the primary. This is kind of similar to the baggage Joe Biden has carried, and I've reported on for many months now, with one really important exception. Biden polls very well among black voters. The question remains whether Bloomberg can turn this around. Reading once more from the Times, Quote, this issue is a threshold issue, said Stephen K. Benjamin, the mayor of Columbia, South Carolina, who came to the church service and had dinner with Mr. Bloomberg several weeks ago, where the topic of stop and frisk came up. Mr. Benjamin said he had urged Mr. Bloomberg to run in 2020. I am a big believer that there is strength in humility and genuine contrition, realizing and articulating you got something wrong. End quote. Over the weekend, we saw a lot of new polling data. CBS News released four polls covering Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. And the Des Moines Register released the latest version of its Iowa poll. Okay, so what's the summary? Well, long story short, in these early voting states, this is a three-way race among Biden, Sanders, and Warren, and we may be able to add a fourth person to that mix. That's Buttigieg. He's doing very well in Iowa, and his position is rising in New Hampshire. I don't want to hit you over the head with too many numbers here, but I do need to explain the Buttigieg rise in Iowa. In that Des Moines Register poll, 25% of likely Democratic caucus-goers chose Buttigieg as their first choice. Behind him are Warren at 16, and Biden and Sanders tied at 15. The margin of error there is plus or minus 4.4%, so Buttigieg is way outside that margin, and the other three in that poll are basically chilling in the backseat of the van. Nobody else got double digits. Now, in the other new poll of Iowa, that's the CBS one, the field looks much more even. And in fact, it has Biden and Sanders tied for the top spot at 22%, with Buttigieg just behind at 21 and Warren at 18 The margin of error for that poll is plus or minus 4.1%. So, yes, these polls differ on the specifics, but the big takeaway is that in Iowa, Buttigieg is now a major factor. In the other polls, again, you've heard enough numbers, but the key message there is clear it's a three or maybe four way race in those early voting states. One more important note none of these polls changed the debate qualification picture for the December DNC debate. So, what I said last week still stands. We have until December 12th for another three, or theoretically more, candidates to pick up polls. Given the volume of polling going on now, adding Gabbard, Steyer, and Yang to that December stage seems like a pretty safe bet. Okay, it's time to commit. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. And now the impeachment news in three minutes or less. On Friday, testimony from Ukraine embassy staffer David Holmes leaked in the form of a series of photos of his written opening statement. This is the staffer that Bill Taylor referred to as having overheard a phone call between President Trump and EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland. Reading from Carrie Paul of The Guardian, quote, The transcripts, which are being called damning, include Holmes saying he overheard Sondland tell Trump that Ukrainian President Zelensky will do anything you ask him to. End quote. Another follow-up from Friday. I said Friday that the transcript of an earlier call between Trump and then-Ukrainian President-elect Zelensky had nothing of interest. Well, apparently one thing was in fact notable about it. In the original readout of the call, the White House said that the call included a discussion of corruption and reform in Ukraine and stuff like that, which in fact are not present in the call log released on Friday. There has been a big dust-up about whose error that is, whether the readout was wrong or the call log was wrong or whatever. And the issue may in fact be that Trump was given talking points about those issues before the call, but maybe simply didn't bring them up in the actual call. So that's where we are with that right now. Today, President Trump suggested on Twitter that he would strongly consider testifying in the impeachment inquiry. He appeared to be responding to yesterday's episode of Face the Nation, where House Speaker Nancy Pelosi suggested that Trump should go ahead and testify if he wanted to. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said roughly the same thing. I will, of course, keep you posted if Trump ends up being a witness, but keep in mind that he made similar comments about the Mueller investigation and then refused to sit for interviews. He did, however, submit written testimony to Mueller's team. In a related matter, today a court is considering whether the House will get access to the underlying materials from the Mueller investigation. The court hearing is actually in progress as I say this, so the outcome is not clear yet and it won't be today anyway, but it is being treated as an urgent matter. The underlying issue is that House investigators want to know whether the President himself lied in his written testimony. Specifically, they want to know whether the President had knowledge of his campaign's communication with WikiLeaks. So, more on that when we know it. Coming up this week, there will be more public testimony starting tomorrow. That's Tuesday, and that will feature Alexander Vindman, among others. Sondland will testify Wednesday, and there are a total of eight people scheduled to testify in public this week, all packed into just three days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So, savor today and Friday, because those are the only days this week with no public testimony. On Friday, former President Barack Obama appeared with Stacey Abrams at an event for the Democracy Alliance in Washington. Obama's remarks have made headlines because they respond to the recent candidates jumping into the race at the last minute, seemingly concerned about whether Biden is the right moderate candidate. There's also the overall disagreement among Democrats between liberal policies and moderate ones. That's a lot of what the DNC debates are about, and that's in large part what this whole thing of finding another moderate candidate might be about. Obama speaks to that issue from his perspective. So I just want to read to you a few of the notable Obama quotes, as reported by Sean Sullivan in the Washington Post. Quote, This is still a country that is less revolutionary than it is interested in improvement. They like seeing things improved. But the average American doesn't think we have to completely tear down the system and remake it. And I think it's important for us not to lose sight of that. End quote. Okay, next one. Quote, My point is that even as we push the envelope and we are bold in our vision, we also have to be rooted in reality and the fact that voters, including Democratic voters and certainly persuadable independents, or even moderate Republicans, are not driven by the same views that are reflected on certain, you know, left-leaning Twitter feeds or the activist wing of our party, end quote. All right, and here's the last one, quote, We have the better argument. We can't be arrogant about it. We can't take for granted that somehow people just, you know, the scales will fall from their eyes at some point. End quote. So, no particular analysis of these remarks from me. There are two links in the show notes to lengthy discussions of what these remarks mean and don't mean, but I just want to make sure you're aware of what Obama actually specifically said. Let's keep this next one short because it's not really a thing yet, but it might become a thing. There are some whispers and rumors that Representative Will Hurd, a Republican from Texas, might maybe, perhaps, somehow run for president. This seems deeply unlikely to me, but if we play around with the idea for a minute, it is kind of interesting. It's also potentially interesting in some kind of super long-shot scenario where, you know, maybe impeachment and removal does somehow occur and the GOP has to look around for an electable candidate real quick. Hurd is currently the only black Republican in the House, and he is a relatively moderate politician. He apparently held six events in New Hampshire, which is an early voting state, on Sunday alone, which does seem... Kind of weird for somebody from Texas who is not running for president. So anyway, no concrete news there, but it is sometimes fun to think about far-out rumors. (music) Last up today, a super short item. I just want to note that, yeah, there is a full-scale DNC debate on Wednesday night. Leading up to all the previous debates, the news cycle has been way more focused on the candidates and the debates. But right now, it can be hard to find news on anything other than impeachment. So it can be easy to forget that this is a very important moment in the Democratic primary. Everybody on that stage will have worked really hard to get there. And I'm going to have a bunch of clips the next day trying to summarize what they had to say. So again, that debate will air on MSNBC from 9pm to 11pm Eastern Time on Wednesday night. You can stream it on the MSNBC or Washington Post websites, as well as their apps for smartphones and TVs and tablets and, I don't know, probably watches or fridges or microwaves or whatever. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I've been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. To close out the show today, I want to say thank you for listening. It matters to me that people tune in and pay attention, and I often hear from y'all online. I appreciate that. And, you know, not just the stuff about how much you like the show. That's great, and I do enjoy that. But also, constructive criticism is valuable, and I pay attention to it. So that's it. Just thank you, I continue to listen, and I'm going to keep making the best show I can make. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to you all tomorrow. Look around. You can find cars like these on Autotrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented...